It's Friday, February 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. More vaccines could be approved very soon. One from Johnson & Johnson, and another from a company called Novavax. If authorized, this vaccine could be one of the most potent weapons against the pandemic. Early data shows that it could be the first shot to slow down asymptomatic spread and potentially provide longer-lasting protection. The other part of this story is the company itself. Novavax was a small biotech company that has tried to develop an approved vaccine with no success so far. Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how Novavax turned its company around to make an effective COVID vaccine. Next, ghost kitchens or virtual restaurants have taken over America's restaurants. The new world is search-optimized and data-driven. Often these restaurants have no storefront and no place to dine in. Instead, they can be found on food delivery apps like Uber Eats and Grubhub. Some experts say that these virtual restaurants will be a $1 trillion industry in the next 10 years. At a time when restaurants are struggling due to the pandemic, this expansion can be a lifeline for many. Adam Chandler, contributor to Marker, joins us for the rise of Ghost Kitchens. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I've been accused of never having brought a, uh, a product to market before, little old Novavax. It turns out, so I'll just I'll, I'll make one comment to that. We have a, an incredible staff of now 700 people, and many of those 700 people have brought many products to market. So it's not the company, it's the people that bring it to market. Joining us now is Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Gregory. Of course, great to be here. We've been talking a lot about vaccines. Obviously, uh, we have Pfizer and Moderna right now. We're hoping to get a few more approved very soon. Johnson & Johnson is coming up. We're also hearing very good things about Novavax. And part of this whole story about the science and the companies behind making these vaccines has just been so interesting to me. Obviously, in Pfizer and Moderna, their vaccines, that technology had never been proven before. And now those are the two that we have approved here in the United States for Novavax. They had such a, a roller coaster of a business history. People called them at one point the little company that couldn't because they never really produced the vaccine, but they were trying so hard in a bunch of different avenues. But now they're on, on board and, and they could be approved very soon. Their vaccine has some potential benefits that others don't. And it's just an interesting story overall. So, Greg, tell us a little bit more about Novavax, their vaccine and their company. They're a little company outside Washington, D.C. And when you think about this whole period, it's just shocked us in so many ways, how we've handled it, the companies have come to the rescue, and there's really no one more surprising than this company, Novavax. I'm talking about beginning of 2020, they had about six months of cash left, and they were going to go out of business. And their employees were, they had one foot out the door. They were looking for jobs. The stock was at $4 a share, it was under $4 a share. So there really was nobody less likely to come up with a vaccine to save us as this company, Novavax. They tried and tried for years. At one point, their only product was this product uh, cream for hot flashes for postmenopausal women. And even that thing didn't sell. So it was kind of a loser company that had tried and tried and failed and failed. And yet, uh, it's a real tribute to the scientists there. Under the radar, they were plugging along and making tweaks and improving this vaccine uh, strategy they have. And lo and behold, they're like early next last year, they're like, you know what? We think we have a shot at coming out with a vaccine. And they succeeded. It's not approved yet, but in the next few weeks, it likely will be. Tell us about 
their vaccine platform because it's different from the mRNA one that we've been hearing about? How does theirs work? So this one is a little bit more traditional, not exactly the kind of vaccine we all think of historically, which is sort of you get the real virus and you, as they say, kill it or water it down. It's not like that, but it's called a a protein subunit, which is basically they create the spike protein outside the body in a lab. It's actually using, believe it or not, cells from insects. Originally, they were these uh, army worms are called. And they use a virus that's actually a virus that uh, affects animals and affects insects. And they create that in the lab. They create the spike protein in the lab and they put it together with this adjuvant, which is just sort of like this substance that boosts the uh, immune reaction in the body. They put it together and they put it in the vaccine and they um, put it in your arm. And basically it sends the spike protein into the arm as opposed to, like you said, the mRNA, which is a code which gives you instructions, the body instructions, hey, go create this spike protein. The Novavax vaccine, it's already been created, shoots it in your arm. And there's some people, some scientists I've talked to who believe it's it's maybe the most durable of the ball and it's the one they want to take. So again, this kind of dinky, unlikely company may have, it's not clear yet, may have the best vaccine of them all. I do love the kind of history of the company, the business history of the company, because you know, if they do have a successful one, this will be their very first successful thing, basically. You know, they were working on vaccines for HIV, SARS, MERS, Ebola, the flu. Everything either didn't pan out in clinical trials or whatever the epidemic that they were working for, those kind of ebbed down. So maybe their vaccine wasn't needed anymore. Obviously, the need is paramount with COVID-19, so it's still here. But tell us a little bit more about their ups and downs. They, I mean, they were their shares were only a few cents at one point. Now they're doing great. They were kicked off Wall Street of the NASDAQ market at one point. So this is really a comeback story for them as well. Yeah, it's also a story about persistence and resilience. And we, um, I kind of focus on the aha moments and the scientists and the breakthrough moments. But a lot of science is just sort of slowly improving over the years, whatever you're working on and learning, just learning about viruses, learning about approaches and tweaking things. And we don't give enough credit to sort of like the the long slog, the process, and it takes years and years. And these guys, they were kind of seen as a loser company and they kept failing. But when it comes to at least the biotech world, you can fail with a drug or a vaccine and still have some pretty good ideas. It just some reason it just didn't go right. And um, maybe the virus dried up like Ebola or MERS or something where you know, you're working on it and it's not needed by the time you put it together or it just doesn't meet the end point by a little bit. There are all kinds of reasons why you can fail. And, you know, some of us on the outside see this company and it's trading at three dollars and they've never succeeded at anything. And we dismiss it. And there are a lot of people a year ago who were just sort of mocking Novavax and who are these people to get money from the government because they got billions from the government and from others, from um, nonprofits, from the Gates Foundation. And people literally wrote stories, well, there's got to be something nefarious going on because (laughs) who are these people, Novavax, to actually get money and support? But sometimes there's serious scientists who just haven't had success, but they are uh, diligent and serious and they're making improvements. And it's a story about just resilience, I think. There's still a lot of difficulties coming up. You know, production of the doses of vaccine will be difficult. I think they had a factory that they had to end up getting rid of at one point. So they had to push back some things, you know, their clinical trials. Things have been pushed back because of these complexities, but they have to get that in order, get approved, and these are the next steps for them. 
they're not uh, out of the woods just yet. It hasn't yet been okayed by the regulators, and they still have to produce a lot of it. They've got agreements in place to manufacture them. So it's still not clear yet, though, uh, whether they've hit their home run, but they're close. And it is a testament. It's a fascinating thing that the biggest pharmaceutical companies that you would have expected to have saved us from this pandemic, companies like Merck, who produce the, the most vaccines, they are the vaccine experts, GSK, all kinds of big companies. They weren't there for us for various reasons. They either tried and failed or they just weren't as focused on, on coronavirus. And yet it was like these unlikely characters that, that stepped up and getting us out of this pandemic, hopefully. Gregory Zuckerman, special writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, great to be here. If you open up any of your delivery apps and see what restaurants are around you, you're going to see a lot of a lot of options that you've never heard of before that are secretly or not so secretly being run by restaurants that you may otherwise order from on a regular day. Joining us now is Adam Chandler, author of Drive Through Dreams, journalist based in New York and contributor to Marker. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about a, a very interesting thing that's been developing for a while, kind of accelerated through the pandemic, and looks like it could be an important part of the future of the restaurant industry. And we've talked about this before: ghost kitchens, virtual kitchens, cloud kitchens. It's got a lot of different names, but basically, these are kitchens and and so-called restaurants that are popping up. They don't really have a storefront; you can't go dine there. But they're doing delivery. So you can find them on DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, things like that. And they're catered specifically to the demands of the community there. There's a lot of stuff that goes into this. And it seems to be an increasing part of the restaurant industry and the future of it. So tell us a little bit uh, more about this, Adam. It's an interesting development for sure. What what dining has um, undergone in the last few years has been a real move away from in-person dining, like going into a store and being waited on um, has been replaced kind of in this Netflix and chill era. And so what we've been seeing is people are ordering out more. People are getting office catering more back when we were going to our offices and uh, people prefer takeout to being out in the world. And so Businesses have invested a lot of money in creating an infrastructure to cater to people who aren't going to go inside and dine anymore. And obviously, during the pandemic, that's accelerated rapidly. It's interesting that the really the only growth that has happened in restaurants has been in food consumed away from restaurants. Obviously, the pandemic accelerated all that stuff. You made mention in the article, it's kind of like if 90% of the U.S. population started ordering exclusively online dinner last year. That's not the only piece alone. You know, there's small mom and pops that are doing this. There's big chains like Applebee's that are doing ghost kitchens. Restaurants are expanding, playing with the possibility of different menus. Uh, there's a lot of different avenues for uh, available to restaurants. It's a surprising trend in that it's so unexpected that this uh, very personal and very transparent food system that we've kind of been obsessed with, we've been obsessed with being able to see uh, when we go to, say, Chipotle, our orders kind of made in front of us and just have a kitchen visible. That's been a big trend in food in the last 10 years. And now what we're seeing is that restaurants are moving more, I guess, away from that in uh launching these brands that don't really have any storefront presence and just kind of exist online only. And it, it's a surprise if you really look into it, if you open up any of your delivery apps and 
see what restaurants are around you. You're going to see a lot of a lot of options that you've never heard of before that are secretly or not so secretly being run by restaurants that you may otherwise order from on a regular day. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned in the article, a lot of chicken wings. We'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, you mentioned Chipotle. They opened their very first ghost kitchen in New York and you went uh, out to go check it out. How was that experience? Well, you know, it was a funny trip north of New York City for about an, to, uh, an hour to go to the Ghost Kitchen Chipotle. It looks exactly like any other Chipotle, except nobody's dining inside of it. So it's for third-party delivery platform drivers to pick up orders and deliver them. It's for catering orders to kind of enter a separate entrance and pick up a huge order to go. And then it's for people who are just passing by and ordered on their apps. It doesn't accept cash. You can't order in the store and you can't eat in the store. And that's kind of what's surreal about it is that it's the entire Chipotle experience without eating inside of a Chipotle, which, you know, has always been its own kind of special thing. It's very crowded in there. You go through the line and you pick out exactly what you want. So it really is a diversion from their normal standard operating orders. Let's talk about costs when things like this happen, because opening a restaurant is expensive. We, we've heard the stories. We know that it's very expensive. But to do something like this, a digital kitchen, a virtual restaurant, it's a fraction of the cost, really. And let's say you already have an existing kitchen. If you're you know, one of these restaurants like an Applebee's or something, and maybe you're branching off into something else. I mean, the cost of opening a digital kitchen at that point is even less. That's exactly why it's such an attractive proposition is that if you already have kitchen space and during off hours or certain days of the week, you're not seeing huge rush of of people coming in to dine. And this has happened a lot in the last few years. There's a great opportunity in having your kitchen serve as another virtual brand that generates profit by offering things that people want to order and have delivered to their houses. Now, one of the, as I keep mentioning, you know, there's a lot of bigger businesses that are getting on this train. We heard last year about a, a place called Pasquale's Pizza and Wings, only to realize that it ended up being Chuck E. Cheese that was sell, sell, selling out pizza and wings. Uh, that was a pretty funny one. I mentioned Applebee's already. They're getting in on this game. Uh, I saw a story just uh, today. Guy Fieri is opening up a hundred flavor town kitchens, he's calling them, you know, all across the country. Uh, to get in on this virtual kitchen craze. One of the other things that you did too was looking into, you know, you opened your apps and kind of did some sleuthing just to see how many virtual kitchens they might be out there. And there are a few telltale signs of these virtual kitchens. As I mentioned, there was a lot of chicken wings that you ended up noticing. Right. I know that chicken wings are a really popular ghost kitchen concept because they don't really require a lot of space in a kitchen. Um, you know, they're very popular. They have high profit margins. And it's pretty easy to transport buffalo wings in a, you know, in a to-go container. It's not, it's not a really delicate dish that requires a lot of finesse. So that's one thing about it that makes it popular. And so I decided to open my Seamless app and just look for wings. And when I, when I did that, I saw a lot of listings around me in New York that were a ton of places that I had never seen before out in my neighborhood around me. And by looking at their address, I could kind of sleuth out which restaurants were serving these wings. So one of them was an Applebee's. One of them was a local diner that I go to around the corner from me that has ventured into uh, a side hustle of serving wings. Uh, another was uh, a tavern that probably 
doesn't have a lot of in-person business right now that's looking for a way to survive during the pandemic. And then another one which I ended up ordering from was um, Nathan's Famous, which is the hot dog chain that everyone knows from Coney Island. Yeah, definitely. That has had wings on their menu for a long time, but decided to spin off into another brand uh, that serves out of the exact same kitchen and delivers chicken wings. You know, we're getting a lot of data from Grubhub, Uber Eats, all all the the ordering apps and everything that we, you know, sign over our data to, obviously. (laughs) But, you know, they're able to kind of pinpoint what the community wants at that moment. If a neighborhood, a couple cities very close to each other keep looking for burritos, let's say, well, they can then go to a company, they can go to a restaurateur, somebody, hey, maybe you might want to think about opening a virtual kitchen that just does specialty burritos because everybody is going to want these in your area. Right. It's a foolproof way to kind of game the system using data. And it, it, it's, you know, it seems a little sinister and it feels a little sinister to some. Um, other people might think of it as just a smart business, but um, the fact that your data is kind of being used in this way is effective for better and for worse. It's really compelling to think if you are somebody who is looking for vegan food or have a strict diet that needs something specific and enough people in your area are, are looking for vegan food, that might actually lead to the development of an option in your neighborhood if um, there are enough people around you searching for something in the right apps and someone mines the data properly and decides to approach a kitchen that may be doing something else and say, look, there are a lot of people in your in your zip code who have an interest in vegan food. Why don't you open up a spinoff and see how it goes? And it's proven to be smart. Specifically, Uber, their founder has spent $130 million uh, the past couple of years getting spaces to set up these ghost kitchens. They have a startup, I guess it's called Cloud Kitchens. They can even create their own restaurants, just hire a little bit of staff and, you know, they're just making more money for themselves. It's totally interesting the way that happens. So the last thing I want to ask you about is, well, what is the future of these ghost kitchens? Now we're talking about how this trend is just picking up so much. And I I love the line in your article, culinary innovation and experimentation ahead will be digital. We're going to use all this data, point to what the community wants, and then, you know, you're off to the races to develop the food for it. Exactly. It really does kind of change the experience that we know of. When you think about restaurants, you think about the passing down of traditions, um, what really someone is passionate about cooking, maybe something they grew up with, maybe something that they've developed over time. And it kind of inverts that by saying, we already know what everyone in your general vicinity wants to eat. Why don't you just make that? It really is turning what is kind of a passion project into something that is kind of a strictly business grab. And that's, for some people, that's a really smart way to take the risk out of a really risky business. And that's kind of what ghost kitchens come down to. Running restaurants is difficult. The real estate, the labor costs, there's a lot of risk involved. And so by taking the risk out of this, we may actually be creating a more sustainable restaurant. It's just a question of, you know, whether that's ultimately what we want. Adam Chandler, author of Drive Through Dreams, journalist based in New York and contributor to Marker. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.